Federal managers are deep into building their fiscal 2024 budget requests. I know 23 hasn't come through, but you know how it works. The IT people have a big question. How will they fund the shift to zero-trust cybersecurity? White House cyber policymakers see progress, but they say agencies will need continuing cyber dollars. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday joins me for the latest. And cybersecurity funding, it's a big ticket item. What do you think we can expect to see in 2024, Justin? Well, I think you can certainly expect to see more of it and expect to see more programs in line with the federal zero trust strategy. You remember that strategy was released earlier this year in January at which point agencies had already finalized their fiscal 2023 budget requests that were released uh, just a few weeks afterward. But the strategy gets really into detail, uh, five pillars of zero trust, broad areas like identity management, but then very specific actions agencies must take by the end of fiscal 2024. That's coming up fast, those deadlines, as agencies are building these 2024 budget requests. Federal Chief Information Security Officer Chris DeRussia says the strategy is giving those cybersecurity folks in government the ability to do strategy-based budgeting, as he puts it, all the way down to the technology investment in a way that he hasn't really seen happen in cybersecurity before. And we can do that by, in each budget build, saying these are the capabilities, everybody, inside this pillar of zero trust. If you're looking for an investment on X, Y, or Z tooling, it fits here, and you can bring that back to us. We get that data, and then we can build back up and have a sense for each pillar, how much people are investing over each individual budget year, and then how much at an aggregate level they're investing in their zero trust strategy implementation. That you can't do if you don't have all this structure built from the top down. And that's, again, Chris DeRussia, the federal CIO of the Federal Chief Information Security Officer. Justin, these conversations around 2024 are happening, as we indicated at the top. There's no 2023 appropriations yet. Right. Uh, Congress has yet to pass those FY23 appropriations bills all the way all the way through the process. Uh, and so agencies are under a continuing resolution. No new programs, no new big zero trust programs or anything like that that they can kick off here under a CR. But what agencies are doing is figuring out what investments they have in place that kind of meet the intent of the zero trust strategy. And DeRussia highlighted how the Biden administration is already seeking a 10 percent increase in cybersecurity spending across government for fiscal 2023. We typically see bipartisan support for cybersecurity spending in Congress. DeRussia says he's really just trying to continue that trend as we go into 2024. I'm just trying to see if we can keep building off of that success by being compelling and showing with data the need for these investments, because, you know, that's what's been missing from it. You know, if you can't fund these things, you're not doing much. And so it's really, really important that you use that data to to drive those investments. How else can agencies fund zero trust? There is the TMF. There's a lot of money that Congress has appropriated all over the place for infrastructure, you name it. So maybe there's other low-hanging grapes that agencies can grasp at? Yeah, well, you mentioned the TMF, Technology Modernization Fund. It got a billion dollars in the American Rescue Plan. And, you know, the DeRussia is leading the team that kind of oversees that that funding that then goes down to agencies. So far, they've actually made five investments uh, in zero trust so far for five agencies, the U.S. Uh, Agency for International Development, Department of Agriculture, Office of Personnel Management, the Education Department, and the General Services Administration has each gotten uh, awards to TMF to start investing in zero trust. So they have a head start maybe over some other agencies 
who are trying to figure out what they can do with their current year dollars. But Jerusha says that those TMF investments came with some strings attached. And the compact we asked back from them said, hey, you know, you're going to get your money right now where others are trying to get their money into 23 or future budget requests. We're going to hand this to you right away. And the compact back is we need it to be an enterprise good. Like what you learn from this, we want to pull back in and work with CISA and others from the center point to, to learn those lessons. And of course, Justin, the question that vendors always have are, are there any specific tools, any specific technologies that agencies will be going after as they try to get to zero trust? There's a whole lot in that zero trust strategy, a whole lot of specifics around you know network segmentation and different things like that. But it really puts a premium on enterprise identity and access controls, um, including multi-factor authentication. And it actually requires agencies to adopt phishing-resistant authenticators um, across the board for their staff and for contractors. So, you know, you have the personal identity verification card, PIV card, pretty good uh, phishing-resistant authenticator right there for federal employees. But then, of course, you have more telework happening. You have contractors who need to access systems. And adversaries can increasingly automate phishing attacks and take advantage of text message codes and things like that that are used as part of conventional multi-factor authentication. Eric Mill, senior advisor to the federal chief information officer, says this whole phishing resistant push is a, is a really big initiative across government. We're seeing lots of cases, both against government and industry, where people's phones will just get spammed with approved deny buttons until somebody hits approve. We obviously have to do better. And what we have said from as a policy matter is we just can't keep using these conventional methods when we know how easily they fall when it counts. So we're really focused on opening doors and knocking down barriers to taking the phishing-resistant approaches that we have and making them work, but and especially knocking down barriers to pulling in newer approaches, FIDO-based ones being the big family of them, and really making better use of those inside the federal government. And that's Eric Mill, senior advisor to the Federal Chief Information Officer. He mentioned FIDO, that the FIDO Alliance is a tech industry group that puts out basically strong authentication standards that are phishing resistant. All right. And you mentioned multi-factor authentication. This has been talked about so for so many years. Are agencies pretty much across the board there with multi-factor? Well, in a word, no. Uh, the, you know, it's hard to tell, but it's been uneven adoption to say the least. In May, the House Homeland Security Committee held a hearing where it was highlighted how as of uh, the end of last year, just 13 agencies had fully adopted multi-factor authentication across their systems. And that's just, and what, just one CFO Act agency at that. It's complicated. There are legacy systems. Uh, you hear folks say that a lot. There are legacy systems um, that you have to modernize and are hard to bring into MFA. So there are these big goals in the zero trust strategy to get to phishing resistant multi-factor authentication and even higher bar. But to Russia says that they are allowing from the White House level uh, on down some, some flexibility as they oversee agency implementation plans. It's a huge transition. We still are pushing for MFA of any kind everywhere. Well, we're also pushing for FIDO technology and phishing resistant strong authentication. And it's like, it's going to kind of have to be a balance based on risk as we look at the type of assets we're protecting and like where we put our efforts first and in investments and metricing and all of that. You know, it's, just, it's, it's going to be a big transition, obviously. Well, then the implication is that you have to have a good plan 
before you're going to get any money. I think that's right. Chris DeRussia, he's in the Office of Management and Budget, which ultimately has to um, approve agency budgets and pass them back and, and all that before we get to the February budget release. And they're going to be looking at agency zero trust implementation plans and making sure that they're on the mark. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there and I really grew up there, um, I, didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers and, you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really 
sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. So he thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, Um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour. And you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, getting confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. 
And I realized, so, well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs, how, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down on the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So, so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry. Maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply. Whether it's Baker's Simple Truth Turkey or Mac and Cheese with Murray's English Cheddar, 
or pie made with fresh cosmic crisp apples. There are many dishes we look forward to sharing during the holidays, and Baker's has all the fresh ingredients you need to turn today's holidays into tomorrow's memories. Baker's, fresh for everyone. Get more ways to save at the buy five or more, save $1 each sale. Just buy five or more participating items and save a dollar each with card. Baker's, fresh for everyone.